Hello, scribes and scribblers. Welcome back to the Nib Section, the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. I'm Diana Dye. Hmm. I don't know what to call myself now. <laughs> Supreme <laughs> leader. <laughs> I'm Diana Dye, producer in chief. I'm here with my co-host, generous manufacturer Sharon Zah. How are you, Sharon? Good, good. This is odd. Is it Sunday odd? Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon. We don't usually go this late. We don't usually record this late. It doesn't feel that late to me because I just woke up from a nap. <laughs> what are you writing with today, Sharon? I am writing with a pen that we will be talking about shortly, a Faber-Castell Hexo fountain pen in the colour rose. Oh, yes. I am also writing with the Hexo because... We were both given one of these to test. But I'm also writing, I've also been writing with the last couple of days, another pen we were given to test and which you haven't received yours yet. Um, but between the two of these, um, I've been enjoying them quite a bit. And it's been the first time this year I've gone out of my comfort zone. I think if you've listened to our last few episodes, you'll find that mostly uh, for COVID reasons, we've been going back to old favourites rarely venturing out of um, our usual inks and pens, but being forced to review something really does, you know, force us to be more um, explorative and um, have an opinion about something we don't already love. Yeah. So um, I've actually been using, um, aside from the Hexo, uh, which obviously been reviewing, but um, I've also been using the Graph von Faber-Castell Classic in um I have two. I have one in a titanium finish and titanium anello finish and I have another one in snake wood. And I have been comparing those two actually to the Hexo. And I have some interesting thoughts. Possibly unpopular thoughts. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um so as you might have guessed by now, this episode is very Faber Castell heavy. We were contacted during our hiatus by Sarah from Faber-Castell Australia. Now, Faber-Castell Australia, they're the local um, company, the local distributor for Faber-Castell. I think we met a representative from Faber-Castell Australia at the Sydney Pen Show last year. Um, Timothy, I think his name was. He introduced himself to us while we were at our table during the day. Really nice. It was very exciting to receive an email from them and um, she proposed that we do something. Um, and that was part of what prompted us to come out of hiatus, to be quite honest. You know, it, it was the kick up the ass that we really needed <laughs> to well, get some nothing, work done. Yeah, there's nothing um, more inspiring or terrifying than being given free stuff and being told you've got to try it out and maybe give your opinion about it um to you know give us that kick that we needed to restart this and so thank you sarah thank you timothy also for introducing yourself to us last year and thank you for sending this big box of stuff for us to try out it was quite surprising what i picked it up from the post office I did not know what it was at first. It was so huge. I expected maybe a pen, but what I didn't expect um, was this massive illustrated history of the brand, which is basically a coffee book. It weighs about 15 kilos. 
and it's full of images and uh, genealogies of Faber-Castell, all 260, however many years of it, and incredible illustrations of all their pencils and all the products they've put out over the centuries. So I'm still slowly making my way through it, but it's really very interesting um, as a history nerd and as a stationary nerd. So thank you for that, Sarah. And Sarah also allowed us to interview Michael, the managing director of Faber-Castell Australia. Uh, He was very gracious in giving us some of his time. And I had a conversation with him over Zoom, which you'll be hearing right now, (laughs) which you'll be hearing right now. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know you must be busy. We really appreciate the chance to talk to you and also to learn more about the history and the future of Faber-Castell. No problem. As we all know, Faber-Castell is an incredibly, it's a company with a lot of history, particularly in making pencils and art supplies. So how does Faber-Castell locate itself in the fountain pen and fine writing instruments world? Is it separate to its business, you know, in art supplies? Does it see it as a sort of a prestige and niche market? Um, does it is it in there for fun? Is it a passion or how would you explain it? Sure, sure. Yeah, completely, completely understand the question because I guess we are more known for um, different categories like, uh, you know, our polychromous pencils and, and um you know, and in Australia, probably we're most known and most loved for connector pens, right? Yes. These, 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 we all played with them when we were little. <laughs> that's right. These great markers that we all grew up with, and 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 I think has a has a you know the, the brand for that reason has a has a special brand has a special place in a lot of Australia's heart. But I think with regard to how you know fountain pens and fine writing instruments and what role do they play in our portfolio. I think more and more the way we think about our brand and certainly the way um, our organisation in Australia thinks about the brand is that um, we aspire to be a companion for life. And, uh, you know, it, it, it pretty much means what it says, right? We, we want to be there at all of your creative moments whether that's, you know, um, you're just starting to learn or express yourself on paper with, you know, um, with a crayon or whether, you know, um, you're in your adult life and you're, mm. you're writing down your creative ideas or, you know, if, if you're in one of the more traditional creative industries like art or architecture or, or anything like that, I think we'd like to be partnering with people to be able to express themselves and enjoy expressing themselves. I think that's really fundamentally what it's about. And and for us, it is actually in our DNA because all of us who work in this business, you know, really sort of believe in that, um, you know, that, that really tactile experience of working with, you know, beautiful instruments to sort of capture our less than perfect ideas. Oh, I, I love that answer because um, as someone who, when they were in junior school and high school, I owned several sets of Faber-Castell coloured pencils and they were the, yeah. you know, they were very desirable for me at the time. And now I still see my Faber-Castell, or particularly my Graphon Faber-Castell pens as, you know, premium top range, um, but they serve purpose for me now at my stage of life I still sometimes go back to my pencils and um, markers but now it's the pencils and also the drawing pencils I mean and the fountain pens that I love to use 
Yeah, totally. I, I think it's and it's one of those things. I think I think we we tend to lose our connection with creativity or we don't see ourselves as creative, you know, if we're just in an office sort of environment or if we're, you know, we're doing our sort of day-to-day jobs. But you know, I think I think for us it's always been about it's been about expressing yourself, no matter you know what field you're in or what ideas you're you're constructing, you know, uh, capturing those ideas is always something that's that's been important to us, and 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 that's that's where the connection is. You know, we we want to be be there for your creative moments, and you know, we want to be able to you know help you, um, you know, help you fulfil those creative moments. Speaking of the tactile experience of creation, um, what is the company and what is your view on the fast pace of digitization? Um, that we're currently going through and the concurrent um, counter trend, which is the popularization of analog tools. I mean, where do you see Fab Castell fitting in in that? And are there plans perhaps to adopt some form of merging digital and analog? Look, I think, I think, you know, the famous saying is never say never around, you know, merging the, the digital with the analog. I think for, for, from our perspective, and I think the science bears this out, in, is that there is no real substitution for uh, writing your ideas um, and, and capturing your your ideas um, through a pen or a pencil or, or some sort of writing instrument. So there's a myriad of articles that talk mm-hmm. about um, the increased brain activity that, that, that occurs when you're actually writing your thoughts down. Um, the, it's the interaction between your, your hand, the paper and the instrument that really sort of stimulates, you know, a lot of facilities in, um, you know, in our thinking that helps us capture, um, those ideas. So I think, um, so that, I think that's, that's one thing and, and certainly, uh, a, a point of view that we have as an organization that, that, um, there isn't a real substitute for, for that process. But equally, I, I don't necessarily see digitization as a competitor or even uh, a substantial long-term threat to the business. It certainly has that potential, but I think anything that multiplies our ability to be creative and uh, um, you know a person's ability to be creative is is always going to be a good thing. And People will continue, as we've seen now, will continue to search out new ways to be to to actually uh, replicate their ideas, you know, through whatever mediums. Now, whether that's paint or whether that's pencils or pens or whether that's indeed, you know, um, you know, a computer screen and a mouse or you know, a, a, an electronic pen and a tablet. Um, all those options are going to be there. And I think um, stimulating people's creativity is, is actually where we want to play, and we want to make sure uh, we participate fully in that in that process. So, yeah, I, I don't necessarily see it as a as a huge problem. And in fact, yeah, we we almost see it as a as an opportunity to get more people actually create. Mm. Well, you you talk about getting more people to put pen to paper, basically, to create mm. in that yeah. manner. Um, what do you see then as the steps that Fab Castell as an organisation can take towards encouraging people to do that? Is it through making um, 
products that people just really, really want to use? Is that the primary yeah. um, thing? Because I think it's the most yeah. important thing, of course. But um, how do you make that known to people um, and what other steps can you take? Yeah, totally. Um, so product absolutely is foundational um, because, um, you know, without, without us creating the right tool, um, then you know we're never going to win people over, and 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 people are open to so much more than just a brand name. Now you have to make sure your products live up to your promise. And Faber Castell has always been a brand that has stood for quality, um, no matter what segment we play in. Whether you buy a Faber Castell, you know, connector pen, which is you know relatively relatively inexpensive, or whether you buy uh, a Graphon Faber-Castell um, fountain pen, you expect a certain quality for the price point. So that's always got to be there. Um, you know, we, you have to make a tool that works and that and that um, and that does the job that 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 the person buys the product for. But I think more than that, our, one of our roles now is to actually, you know, we're all so busy in our lives that you know we don't really think about how to be creative and how to sort of stimulate um, those more the, those latent sort of possibilities in our mind. So it's, it really is incumbent upon us to to start to bring those to the fore for people um, and and for them to really explore their own possibilities and meet their own potential. So what you know, what does that mean in in real term stuff? It's about you know it's about content and about allowing people to sort of see what's possible and be a springboard for their own inspirational and creative journey. So it's very much for us, certainly product, certainly quality around product, but then it is it is amplifying that through, um, through content and through services that enable people to reach, you know, whatever you know, potential they, they have and aspire to have. Can you give me an example of such a content and service that you mentioned? Sure. So one of the one of the things that we're doing at the moment is that um, uh, from our own uh, from our own perspective, we're creating we're creating content which is you know short snackable pieces on you know whether it's uh, Instagram or or, or Facebook um, that sort of shows people how easy it is to to sort of engage in the creative process or talks to them about the joy of writing with a fine writing instrument. That's, that's certainly, we think, something within our power and our control to create. But equally, we're partnering with creators out in the world who, in, who authentically enjoy our products and our categories, and we're sort of amplifying their message. Because, you know, it's, you know, we don't live in an age anymore where the brand says, okay, this is how you use it, and this is what you do. The brand is very much out there in the public domain. And people use the brand and the brand's products, um, uh, you know, to create these these brilliant pieces of, of creativity. Uh, and I think one of our jobs is to be able to amplify that to um, whoever else is interested in that category or segment to uh, you know to create their own mm-hmm. you know pieces of work. Well, while we're touching on marketing. Um is that area of the company quite decentralised um, in Australia? Do you, for example, have the freedom to develop your own campaigns? Um, you know, push yeah. your own content on Instagram, on YouTube, or whatever avenues that you have, or is it mainly um, coming out of Europe? 
Yeah, good question. I think, um, and it's it's one of those things that the actual business itself has evolved over time. So the the business has been very decentralised, um, and the family have been really successful in in building a global uh, a global business through um, uh, you know through uh, partnerships in in countries. Um, who have seen and, and have shared the same sort of vision that the family had. Uh, and that's been great. I think where we're going to now as an organisation is we're saying, okay, well, that's that was right for the time in sort of expanding through Latin America, through the Americas, through Asia, um, and obviously through Europe. Um, and now it's sort of time with the connectivity of consumers and the world and, and users of our product, we've got to start being a bit more strategic and, um, you know, and global in our approach to marketing. Mm-hmm. So definitely there still are some um, elements that are unique to Australia or to mm-hmm. Germany, uh, but more and more we're looking to, um, uh, to to understand our users better and, and, and typically uh, you know, where we're talk- when we're talking about fountain pens, a fountain pen aficionado in Germany is very, very similar to one in Australia. They really appreciate the same things. You know, they appreciate that beauty and the quality um, of the materials. So, we, we again, we find that you can do that at a, you know, at a much higher level rather than sort of have separate campaigns running in Australia and Brazil and 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 and, um, and Germany. Okay. Um, Getting into the nitty-gritty of fountain pens, um, Mm -hmm. and I I completely understand if this is way too niche uh, for you. Look, try me. Can you walk me a little bit through the process of the conceptualisation, the design, and the manufacture of the Graphon Fabricastel pens of the year? Because they are the the premium top of the Mm. line, and they're very collectible in our, um, Mm. our community. Mm-hmm. Look, um, certainly, uh, you know, I can I can share with you, you know, what I know um, to to a degree because because as you you know would appreciate, it is actually quite uh, a, a a process that we like to keep under wraps for um, uh, for for most of it, and and certainly we when we release. The, you know, the new pens of the year each year, that's something that is certainly very secretive. But look, what I can tell you is that what is at the heart of um, creating uh, a pen of the year is that we really look for um, the right story for the time, but also um, the availability of the right materials um, to create something that is... Um, you know, unique enough and true enough to the concept mm-hmm. that um, that people really sort of understand the piece's significance. So when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, whether it was the, the the Spartan pen of the year or whether we're talking about, a, 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 you know, the series of pens that were relating to sort of nature's luxury, we are talking about Using materials that are true to that particular um, to that particular origin, and 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 at the very least, design languages that talk to that particular origin. So you know, the Spartan pen will have will have you know d- a design language which replicates the helmets, 
which replicates the breastplates of uh, of the uh, of the hoplite soldiers of the era. So they're, they're, we do try and tell a story through each piece, um, through the materials and the design. But outside of that, the rest of the process is pretty secretive. There is one pen of the year coming up, um, which I can tell you is very, very close to the Brent's heart. And um, and we may have to do a follow-up um, interview to, to, okay. to give you the details of that one, but it's super exciting, super exciting. If you allow me one follow-up question. So is the decision sure. made for the theme of the year, is it made by one person, by a group of people? Look, it is it, the decision makers are quite small, and f- for us, one of the things of working for a family business is that you do actually get to meet the family. And you know, I can tell you from my own experience in joining Faber Castell a couple of years ago, um, the last sort of light to sort of go through was actually meeting the Countess um, uh, Faber Castell. Uh, who was then on not only on the executive board of the business but also part of the supervisory board. And, you know, these are, you know, genuine bona fide counts, right? And uh, the cool thing about, um, you know, meeting these guys is not only the sense of history that you get from the origins but also the fact that they're very much involved in the business. And I guess why, you know, why I'm talking about that in this context is that count. Charles, uh, um, who is part of the ninth generation of the family, actually leads the premium business. So ultimately, it's his decision as to you know uh, what we launch and when. So there's a very, very, very strong connection back to the family um, and back to that sort of 260-year history that we have as a as a as a Faber Castell business. Excellent. So we have him to thank for um, my snakewood. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I saw it in the um, the catalogue for 2020 that the I think there's new classics. Um, I'll have to recheck that later on. But I, I did see there's some expanded colours of um, favourites um, in the Fab Castell range. Totally. And, look, I mean, look, the, the favourite thing for me about the, the whole gruff Von Faber Castell um, product line. Look, I I just love working um, with pens that are actually made of wood. Like you just really feel that, just that whole tactile piece, and you, you look at it. It's just, you know, it's just something else. You, you just really feel like um, you actually feel like you want to write, you know, and and it's so, you know, it's it's such a it's such a great connection when you pick up a, an instrument and you you want to use it. it it's you know, it really is. It's a it's one of it's a small joy that you, you know you get through the day. One final question before I um I know we're running out of time. What is next in store for Faber Castell in Australia and its writing instruments division, and what has been the impact of the pandemic? Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh, uh, the two two big questions. Okay. <laughs> The impact of the the impact of the pandemic has been counterintuitive, um, but not when you think about it, right? So the impact of the pandemic for us has been actually quite positive insofar as um, a number of our um, of of people who who sort of are looking for things to do and want to create rediscover our products. So that's that's certainly been a feature of the current pandemic. The things that we sort of we, um, you know, are not great um, uh, outcomes for the pandemic is that 
in our fine writing business and certainly our, our sort of super premium gruff gruff bon fiber castell business is that a lot of our retail partners have been doing it tough because of the closures as a result of the pandemic uh, and there are a lot of tourists that often come and purchase from from these uh, from these small independent um, stores. So um, if I could um, just you know give a shout out to those guys who who are really sort of doing it tough at the moment and uh, and encourage your listeners to support their local um, uh, their local dealers who I'm sure they would all know uh, because those are the guys that will give the service and and really know their stuff uh, and and will talk about the categories really really knowledgeably. So. So that's a bit about um, uh, how the pandemic has treated us. Um, uh, certainly, the creative, the creative part of our business has has done quite well. In terms of what's next for us, I think you know you touched on that we are um, we need to be a little bit more known in the market, and I think certainly we haven't, as a business in Australia, been necessarily consistently supporting our gruff on fibre castell business nor our fine writing business. But you will see that change over the course of the next couple of years. I think we we went to the pen show for the first time last year. Uh, and that was a really great experience seeing so many enthusiastic people. Um, uh, but look, it is something we are super passionate about. There's, there's, there is a, a relatively new team at Faber Castell Australia over the last couple of years, and we've got some great people working on on these um, categories. And 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 we just all really believe in it. You know, we all love the products and and believe in them. And you know, we want to you know make sure other people are are aware of them. And then obviously they can make their own choices from there. But um, you know, our our belief is you know we've um, as as you uh, as you've talked about the uniqueness of those materials and 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 the quality of some of the the instruments that just make it really nice to write with. And we want we want more people to know about those and. And, uh, and and consider us, I guess. Absolutely. And consider Sharon and I both um, Faber-Castell evangelists. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Michael. Um, I loved talking to you and hopefully we'll have the chance to chat again when the next pen of the year comes out. Likewise, and I look forward to it. So is that okay? Yes, perfect. Okay, so that was Michael, the Managing Director of Faber-Castell Australia. Uh, Sharon, you were meant to be in this interview. You were meant to be leading this interview. What happened? I, I was. I was. Um, I was unfortunately detained by a thing known as work. Um, I had a one-hour meeting run four hours overtime, so that, that was quite fun. But speaking of work, I have a work, semi-work-related Faber-Castell story. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happened a couple of years ago, actually. Um uh, I used to work in professional services in accounting um, and one of the teams who uh, was actually on my floor was the audit team for the Australian Faber-Castell group. And um, if you know anything about audit, one of the things that they have to do as part of their year-end processes is check inventory and they have to check that inventory is all there. You know, if you say that you've got X dollars of um, stock, that you actually do have X dollars of stock on hand. And one of the guys is telling me about this process that they had to conduct, which was they had to go into the Faber-Castell vault to check that all of the very, very expensive pens of the year that they had, which were worth you know, thousands of dollars each, were actually still in existence as part of their inventory check, 
very regular audit check. Um, and they came back out of it saying, well, I cited a pen that was apparently $10,000 or something, and I just couldn't believe it. And I was thinking to myself, my gosh, how do I get myself onto this account? Because, you know, if you really want to see whether, if you really want someone to weigh in on whether or not that pen of the year is actually there, you know. (laughs) Who better than you? Exactly. And then they had this whole conversation about, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe that some of these pens were worth this much, um, this many dollars. And I decided just to keep my mouth shut. Well, we know, we know, we on this podcast, we know. <laughs> Did you find out by any chance the location of this vault where all the POTYs are stored? I did not ask, I thought. And even if I did ask, <laughs> I would not be sharing this publicly in case Farmer never <laughs> wanted to talk to us ever again. <laughs> but um, no, that was a, it was a weird, um, it's always weird when you have like your hobbies and your actual work kind of crashing into one another. And um, for me, this was one of the first times when I was in accounting that, um, yeah, my hobby kind of <laughs> weighed in. It was an odd conversation. So the two of us, we've both been using Faber-Castell on Graphon Faber-Castell pens for quite a long time. Um, you for considerably longer than me, I'd assume. Um, what is your history with the brand? Um, so I picked up my first graph on Faber-Castell. It was a coral guilloche back in, oh, my God, which year was it? It would have been 2005, I think, <laughs> 2004, 2005. So I actually went into a uh, physical pen shop, and this was – uh, very early on in my fountain pen collecting days, I'd only gotten, I only had two gold nib pens at the time. My first one being, um, the Pelican M400 and second one being, uh, a Waterman that's not worth talking about. And so I went into a pen shop and the owner of this particular pen shop actually recommended I try something a little bit more, a little bit different, not as traditional looking, um, and a pen that he said, uh, you know, would write very differently to everything else that I had because um, the Faber-Castell, especially the Graphon Faber-Castell Guilloche Classic range, they all have um, one particular feature that I absolutely love, which is the spring-loaded clip on um, the caps. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, this would be something that you'd really enjoy. Plus, you know, the body material is quite different. And Faber-Castell has a really long history with pencils. So if you've ever used a pencil, when you try and use their fountain pen, it's not much of a difference was something that they said. And uh, I picked up my first one back in 2005, I think. And then from there, I have had many classics. Um, I find that I prefer the classics over the guilloche. Um, the mainly because I like the screw cap mechanism over a clip cap, unless it's a Dupont. Um, but throughout all of the Graphon Faber-Castell pens that I've had, all of them have had a very distinctive feature, which has been the pencil-like feedback that they've got. They write like pencils. They really, really do. If so, if you're after like a super smooth nib uh, of Graphon Faber-Castell, it's just not for you. Um, they're notorious for not being super smooth 
um, even at the very broader nib sizes, they're not super smooth. They do take on a bit more of a stub, stubbish um, uh, writing line uh, with if you get one of their broad nibs, but they're never super smooth. They always uh, they always have feedback to them. Um, different to Sailor feedback, which everyone's quite familiar with, mm-hmm. but um, it, I, I find that Sailor is a little bit more, um, it feels a little bit more wooden at times, whereas the Graphon Fabrica still does feel a bit more like graphite. That's a very interesting nuance. <laughs> yeah, it is. Different, like, but you've used the two. Yes, I have. And, like, there is a difference between the feedback of the two. Like, both the Sailor nibs and the Graphon Faber Castell nibs have a, have very noticeable feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that the Sailor ones vary. So, their 14K nib feedback, I'm not a fan of. I, I find that just, ugh, mm-hmm. right? It feels like, um, putting nails on like a buffer. That's what it feels like to me. Um, Whereas the 21K is softer and it's like, I don't know, it feels like when I rub chopsticks together. Okay. I always find with the 14K Sailor nibs that, I don't know how to describe it, like the nib itself is sort of harder and that makes it seem to vibrate more in my hand. Mm. Like it's a, They sing. Yeah, it's a very interesting sensation, which I'm not a big fan of. And I have to say most of my Farb-Castell and Graphon Farb-Castell broader nibs I've had modified. So it's very hard for me to remember what they originally wrote like. But I've had several medium nibs from Farb-Castell and they do have that graphite on textured paper sensation, which I happen to really, really like. You said you bought your first Farb-Castell or Graphon Farb-Castell pen in 2005. I must have gotten it 10 years later. 2015 at the earliest but I think even before then I've been using their pencils and their watercolor pencils and their inks for so long I've always associated them with drawing instruments so I was really curious when I first learned that they also did fountain pens and I think it might have been you who convinced me to try them out because I don't remember whether it was a classic that I first got or an Ondoro. I've owned many models from Faber-Castell and Graf and Faber-Castell over the years and my favorites are like you the the ones that screw on and we'll just we'll explain the reason for that a little bit later um, but I've owned over the years uh, the Loom, the Ondoro, the Tamichio, the Intuition Platino, the Intuition Canelle, I think that's how it's pronounced, the Classic, and I think that's all. And now I've had the Hexo that I've tried, which is from the Farb-Castell line, not Graphon Farb-Castell. And across both ranges, Farb-Castell and Graphon Farb-Castell, I think it's always very easy to identify the brand's design it's always very, very unique and often sort of draws inspiration, as you said, from the shape, the writing qualities of a pencil. And a lot of the models use wood, you know, like maple, um, oak, things like that. Um, also recalling graphite and wood pencils in the fountain pens and in the ballpoints and so on. And a lot of people really 
like that feature and I think that really makes the brand stand out against, you know, like Lamy, like um, Montblanc, like Pelican. Yeah, so the wooden finishes are probably the thing that drew me to the Graf von Faber-Castell range and even, um, what's it called, the Ambition, the chubby one. Mm, I've never owned one of those. <laughs> the chubby one. It's, uh, I like, I actually, I actually really like the ballpoint, the Ambition ballpoint. It's a chubby-looking pen. Hmm. It's a very comfortable um, chubby-looking pen. Is it that chubby? Because it's actually quite long and slender. That's the ambition. Maybe you're thinking of the emotion. The emotion, sorry. The emotion, not the ambition. The emotion. The emotion's one one that's like shaped like an egg, slightly egg-shaped. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one I'm thinking of. I've just put it (laughs) into Google. The emotion. The e-hyphen motion. Yes. That's the one, yes. I actually really like the ballpoint pen. um, Okay. In the e-motion. They do have very stylish clips, I have to say. Yeah. Well, the clips are nice. They're um, spring-loaded clips. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of spring-loaded clips. Which leads us to the Hexo. So let's talk about that. (laughs) Um, Sarah sent us two of the Hexos. So the Hexo is a new model from the Faber-Castell range. It is a sort of a brush metallic body. I think it's made of aluminium. It feels like aluminium. This one is not brushed. The rose is not actually brushed. Mine is black, but it's sort of uh, a matte black finish. This one is a matte rose finish as well. Okay, and the clip looks like, kind of looks like brushed metal, like that sort of colour of um, like an iron cast skillet, that kind of a colour. It's about the size of an Ondoro, I would say, Um, lengthwise similar to something like a Kakuno or a Pilot Prera, maybe? Uh, it It's slightly longer than a Pilot Prera when capped. Okay, but shorter than something like a Metropolitan. Yeah, and shorter, shorter also, I think, than a Safari. I don't have a Safari anymore, so I can't compare it, but that gives you an idea of the size. It's not a very long or a very large pen, but it has a little bit of bulk in the cap, which makes it... Uh, quite easy to cap, uncap and cap on. It's a hexagonal body, which also reminds me of the Kakuno, um, and that's a shape that I happen to really like. The body um, is very is at a very comfortable diameter. Um, it's slightly pregnant in that it kind of swells in the centre and uh, tapers at both the end and also at the grip. I think this is particularly suited to a smaller hand, um, I'm going to say, because it is not a long pen. So it's not a long pen. And in my hand, I have a small hand, right? It it fits perfectly in my hand. The grip section is going to annoy some people because it tapers down and it gets quite narrow right before um, the part where the nib comes out. It actually gets down quite narrow, but the actual pen itself is a lot wider. So it's a bit pregnant. I find the pen very comfortable to use. Me too. It is perfect for my hand mm-hmm. size. Like you can see that in my hand, in in my hand, this pen just fits perfectly. It's it, it is the perfect size for my mm. hand. For and, my hand, and because it's quite light, it's not going to feel unbalanced or tire you out when you're writing. Um, I just think it's obviously built to be carried around and to be very portable. 
its converter filled. Well, it came with a converter. No, it didn't come with a converter. It came with a cartridge, but it takes the Faber-Castell um, converters. Which is just the standard international. Yes. The nib is very small. It's <laughs> tiny. It's a baby nib. It is like a size five, maybe four. Smaller, smaller than a size five. And okay, it looks so size four nib? and it looks very different from any other Faber-Castell nibs that I've used before. So it's mm-hmm. um it's very different from, uh, for example, the Loom or the Ondora nibs. It's smaller. Yep. All right. So let's cut to the chase. Do you like it? Um. So when Michael asked me this after our interview, um, I had to tell him I really like the design. I like the body. I like the way it feels. I like the build quality of the pen, but I really, really do not like the nib on my particular Hexo. Um, I got a a fine nib on the black one. And when I first wrote with it, I knew something was off. Um, I wrote with it right out of the box with the supplied cartridge. And it was not, it wasn't very badly scratchy, but it caught on the paper consistently and not in just one direction. It was just this steady little irritation with every stroke. And normally when that happens with a brand new nib, um, I have a look at it under a loop immediately. And when I did have a look at this particular nib, it wasn't misaligned, which is what my initial fear was. It was even more inconveniently um, a case of the tines being cut unevenly. Um, So I think anyone who's used many fountain pens will probably have experienced this. It's where the tipping is uneven um, on the two tines so that one tine has a little bit more of the globe than the other. (laughs) It's like um, two ass cheeks that aren't even in size. That will help you picture it um, because this is not a visual podcast. I said you could have just said it was a peach (laughs) because they're always uneven. Okay, it's a peach where one half, one globe is much fatter than the other. Or an apricot. (laughs) Okay, enough with the fruit metaphors. (laughs) But when this happens, when the slit hasn't been cut right in the center of the nib, that makes one tine slightly longer than the other. And the only way to make it not scratchy would be to grind down the longer tine. Um, And in the process of doing that, you could just completely wear away the tipping, which would be bad. (laughs) Um, And the other solution would be, actually, there is no other solution because there is no way to get rid of that. It's quite a big problem when you have this on nibs and I've had it on several OMAS nibs. This is just to tell you, it's not something that's um, only found in less expensive pens. So I've had it on OMAS pens, which were $500 plus. Um, But it's always very disappointing when it happens because if it's a misaligned nib, you know, you can get that worked on. If it's uh, baby's bottom, that can be um, worked out. But when it's been cut improperly, that's not a nib that's very easily fixed at all. So I've been writing with this pen for last three weeks or so. And while the scratchiness is not unbearable, it makes me 
not want to write anymore with it. So um, I've born with it for the last three weeks and now I'm ready to just put it down because I have so many other like more um, comfortable and more enjoyable nibs to write with. So tell me that you had a different experience with your nib, Sharon. Totally different. And this is going to be the almost polar opposite of what you just said. I find it a very, very comfortable pen to hold and to use. I am not a big fan of the design. I don't like the look of it. I like the look of most Faber-Castell pens. This is one of the first that I've looked at. I've just gone, (laughs) (laughs) Um, would I spend my own money on this without trying it first? No, absolutely not. This is just not my type of pen. It, I don't know, there's something about the design that is not appealing to me. Mm -hmm. However, once I do have it in hand, I've been using this pen so much more than any other pen that I've had. Right, This probably rivals uh, my beloved Decimos in terms of usage in recent weeks, ever since I've picked this up from um, – ever since I've picked this up. So if I were not a shallow person, then I would be all over this pen because my nib is spectacular. It is a medium nib, so it is the – black ruthenium ion plated uh, steel nib it writes like a dream there's a tiny hint um like a whisper of uh feedback on it but it's not unpleasant and this is a pen that just writes and writes and writes it's got really good flow um mine was you know very comfortable to use it's not too broad um, so if you're looking at these, these do tend towards the more narrow side of European widths. I've loved writing with this pen. And I didn't think I'd say that, actually. Um, so aside from the look of it and the fact that I probably wouldn't buy one because the look for me was just so off-putting, in hand, this was a great pen. I loved it. I loved it to the point where I refilled this particular pen and I put away my classic. <laughs> so he, this is the interesting thing about this pen. So it's got less feedback than most of the other Graflon Faber-Castells that I've tried and the other Faber-Castell pens I've tried. Something to do with the nib. It's got much less uh, feedback, but it's got a hint of it. Like it teases you just a little bit with that um, pencil heritage that it's got. Mm-hmm. And so when you write with it, because it's such a light pen, it doesn't write on its own weight. And whereas the classic, the Graflon Faber-Castell classic, writes on its own weight. So if you let this pen write on its own weight, you won't be able to tell the feedback. If you press down on it, you do tell, you can tell that there's a bit of feedback on it. But both times, it's very enjoyable. Um, and in particular, in my hand, it's very comfortable and it doesn't cause any type of fatigue whatsoever. Um, I don't mind the grip section. Um, like I said, my hand's not super big. So I don't mind the grip section and the body length works great for me. The nib was the really surprising one. I ended up liking this nib so much more than I thought I would. And like I said, I liked it so much that I put away my two classics and I continued writing with this rather than the classics, which is a big deal. Now, the things I thought the classic did better and mind you the classics are at like 10 times the price 
of this pen. Yeah. Right? Ten times. I think they look much better, but from a pure functionality perspective, mm-hmm. the classics, because they've got an 18 carat nib, they're softer. They've got a bit more give to them. They're more feedbacky. Um, they don't write as smooth. And this particular pen has, and it must be something to do with the seal inside the cap, just right out the bat. Whereas I've had classics who that, although they don't um, skip when you first use them, you do have to probably apply a little bit of pressure to get them going. Whereas this just writes off the bat and it is a great pen. Like when you're actually writing with it, like I said, I like the look. <laughs> my minor quibble with this pen is that I've had this pen and it's basically been resting un well used just on a daily basis in my desk and uh, occasionally at work. And I've been running Faber Castell inks, so Graflon Faber Castell inks through this pe- uh, particular pen, and I. S- think there's like a tiny little bit of flaking on the plating of the nib. So I've got a tiny little dot mm. where the black platings come off. Now, it's not particularly noticeable, and I only noticed it maybe about two, three days ago, but it's there. Very interesting. It doesn't detract from the actual usage of the pen. Um, I mean, if you have OCD, it'll, it will bother you because you can tell. And I don't know if this is going to be something that continues on for an extended period of time. I've had, I've had this pen for, what, two, three weeks now. I've been using it consistently, and I've noticed that there's a tiny bit of flaking, hmm. just tiny, tiny little bit. Overall, love using the pen, don't like looking at it, um, would continue to use it if I didn't have to look at it. <laughs> there you are. Okay, I'm so jealous of your nib because – I happen to like most of the things about it, except for the nib. (laughs) And the thing is, there are aspects of the nib that I know I would like if it weren't for the fact that the tines aren't uneven. Um, It is quite wet, as you said. Like The flow, I think, is more – It's it's wetter than – a lot of the Faber-Castell pens. I'm not saying Graf and Faber-Castell. Graf and Faber-Castell, um, because the gold nibs and the softer nibs, they tend to run wetter, exactly. But um, the Loom, the Ondora, they tend to be very moderate and very even in their flow. This is actually quite wet. And my fine is a little bit broader than a lot of Faber-Castell fines that I've used before. So... Um, I think if it weren't for the split tines, it would be a wet, very enjoyable nib to use. And like you, I found that if I left the pen unused for several days or even a week and then I picked it up again, it wrote immediately, even though it's a slip cap. And that's always been my issue with Faber-Castell and also Graphon Faber-Castell pens, which have friction fit caps. Um, A lot of them, even the very pricey intuitions, you know, which are over $500 each, they have, they haven't gotten the slip caps built consistently. Some of them um, seal very tightly and some of them do not. So the nibs will dry out between uses. Um, And that's something I found across the Loom, the Ondoro, the Guilloche, and also the intuition. So those four are all 
friction fit caps, but I haven't had any issues with the Hexo and you're the same. So I think, so I think they've gotten that aspect of the design completely down. Um, But yeah, just the nib, man, (laughs) which is a shame. I'll swap you my nib because this particular pen, I mean, I love this nib. I I really, really do. You should swap me your nib and then we'd have one perfect pen. (laughs) (laughs) One perfect pen for you. Yes. Yes, one perfect pen for me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, more than welcome to this particular nib. Yeah, the the look of it. Look, I don't hate the look of it. And I the color that I got is quite, you know, it's quite fresh and feminine. Um I haven't seen a pen this color before. I'm not going to lie. It's not rose gold. It's like a it's metallic uh, like metallic a... lilac-y pink. Well, in some lights it's like an unrodenized white gold. It's a very warm warm silver. It's a warm silver. That's what it is. I quite like the I quite like the color. I was very attracted to the color right from the get-go. But just the actual look of the pen itself, mm, it doesn't tickle my fancy. But the writing experience, top-notch for me. So the Hexo, let's get down to stats. The Hexo is available in fountain pen, ballpoint, and also a rollable. The fountain pen is $60. That's Australian dollars. And I had a look at um, similarly priced fountain pens in the market in Australia. Um, so the Hexo 60, the Lamy Safari in Australia is 55. The Lamy All Star is a little bit more expensive at 75. And the Pilot Prera is roughly around 67 to 70, depending on where you get it and which model you get. So I think it's fairly priced. How about you? I think it's fairly priced. I would buy this over a Lamy All-Star. I, you know, having lived with it for a couple of weeks now, I find that the actual, just the way that it feels in hand is better than an All-Star. Um, they're both very light pens. They're, they're both very comfortable to use. I do like the look of the All-Star and the Safari, not going to lie. I am a big fan of that particular look, but in hand, this is a much more comfortable pen for me. The nibs, the one that I've got is great. And I much prefer the width of this nib in that it runs a little bit more true to what a medium should be um, compared to the Lamy ones, which run a little bit inconsistent. So the Lamy nibs, I've had some very inconsistent ones personally, and I find their mediums to be much broader than this. This is almost in between Alami Fine and Alami Medium. So I would buy this over an All-Star. Would I buy this over a Safari? I don't know. The nib choice that you can get in Alami All-Star is, oh, sorry, in Alami Safari or an All-Star is really, really uh, enticing because this particular pen only comes in fine, medium, broad. No, it comes in EF as well. In an EF. Yes, it does. We just didn't get one. (laughs) (laughs) So EF, F, M, and B. Yes, four sizes. The Lamy Safari comes in those four sizes plus your 1.1, the 1.5, 1.9 you can switch on. You can switch on a gold nib if you like. You can also get left-handed nibs. You can also get the – if you search hard enough, you can also get the old Kugel nibs, the extra round ones. But, you know, in terms of what's readily available uh, in the Lamy, they've got the same four sizes plus the stub options, the italic options, which I think 
is a little bit more tempting. Yes, the the nibs that are outside of the regular four EF to B, those are purchased separately, aren't they? That was my recollection when I ended up buying a bunch. Yeah, so you can, but you can buy the nibs on their own, and that's true. They they're very flexible, um, and you can swap in between the stainless steel and the gold nibs, because most of the Lamy pens use the same nib, <laughs> the one that looked like a chisel or like a shovel. Yes. Would you buy this pen? <laughs> would I buy this pen? I think if I got your nib, I would definitely buy this pen. I've had numerous Lamy Safaris over the years, and although I'm not someone who dislikes the triangular grip section, it's not my favorite. Um, mainly because it annoys me when my grip doesn't line up perfectly with the nib. You know, the the OCD yeah. in me gets annoyed <laughs> when that happens. Um, and this pen has just a regular, a round grip. It's a very, um, it's a very common grip that you see on Faber Castells, where it's a slightly tapered in the middle um, cylinder. And yeah. um, I think it suits more people's grips as long as yeah. they're okay with a fairly narrow pen. Yeah. So I, I agree. I don't have an issue with the uh, triangle grip on the Safari, but I do prefer the round grip because sometimes I rotate my pen as I write. Mm. If I'm not paying attention, I do rotate my pen a little bit as I write. You asked me if I would buy this, and it's a difficult question to answer because I think if I was just getting into the hobby and I still purchased pens at this price range that weren't Pilot Kakunos, <laughs> I definitely would buy this, you know, because there are very few fountain pens in this price range. And I think this is well-designed and it has a lot of really good qualities. And the only thing that would make me hesitate is like a lot of fountain pens in this price range, the nibs are sometimes inconsistent. And where I find nib consistency is with Pilot, which is why I only buy Pilots in this price range yeah. anymore. Um, so I think that's something that um, the brand will either have to work out or not. Um, I do have to point out that this is, I think, a different nib to a lot of their other models. Yeah, so it's it something is. that's been specially designed for this model. Actually, I'm having a look at hmm, – I'm having a look at the Essential, the Essential, the E-S-S-E-N-T-I-O. And it does look like that model also has mm, a similar nib. Okay, let me put this another way. Would you buy this over a Kakuno? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> but a Kakuno is only $15. I don't think that's a very 15, good comparison. Um, I, I would think this is quite comparable to a Kakuno in terms of how it feels in my hand and how I write with it, other than the fact that the nib sizes are broader than the Kokuno. And for some people, I know, the love, the non-lovers of EF nibs out there, the odd few <laughs> that are there, and thank goodness Tav isn't here to hear me, <laughs> to hear me say that. Um, I, I find this is very comparable to a Kokuno in terms of writing with it. Now, the quality of this pen is much better than a Kokuno, but I've never had a Kokuno break on me before. I will say that. I've put Kokunos through the washing machine and they were fine when they came out. It still broke. It was inked and it didn't leak. Um, and I think if Kakunos came in non-kid 
kitty colours, if they came in matte black and silver and work-friendly colours, um, it would be very similar to this. I agree. And in a metal finish, obviously. Yeah. So the thing that I will say puts this one up above a Kakuno and even up above um, the Lamy Safari or the All Star is the actual sealing mechanism. Mm-hmm. The seal on this is exceptional. A Kakuno, you cannot leave it for a week and expect it to write perfectly because after a week, half the ink would have evaporated. It's got holes on the top mm. of it, right? Like, yeah. Because it's a kid's pen, it's got holes in it, and ink evaporates out of a Kakuno if you just leave it and don't write with it. With a Safari, again, it, the sealing mechanism isn't as good. And if you leave it for probably not a week, but if you leave it for like about two weeks or even, um, yeah, one and a half weeks, it does struggle to start. I left this alone for two weeks just specifically to test that out. And you have to understand also that it's not any, it's not difficult to uncap. Like it's actually very easy to open the cl- to open the cap with just one hand. Um, and that was an issue I had with the loom. I don't know if you ever owned a loom, but especially when the loom became completely metallic, like the cap was metallic, the body was metallic, and if your hands were even slightly slippery, the the seal was so tight and it was so hard to get the p- cap off that I really had to wipe my fingers or, you know, use a rubber grip to get the cap off. And it was certainly wasn't something that you could uncap with just one hand. Um, so ease of use, the Hexo definitely has the um, upper hand over the Safari. Oh, sorry, over the Loom. And something that Michael um, asked me after our interview was he asked me um, whether he felt that the nib should have been flexible or slightly softer. And um, no. yes, I agree. Um, I told him, I told him definitely not, um, especially at this price range where you expect a pen to be writing on all sorts of uh, surfaces, you know, um, post-its on cartridge paper, on regular notepads, on diaries, on good writing paper. Recycled copy paper. That's what I've been Bad paper, <laughs> shitty paper, paper that bleeds, paper that um, is scratchy, paper that will get fibres in between your nibs. It makes more sense to have a nib that is quite stiff so it doesn't um, catch on the paper. It's much more usable also for the non-fountain pen fanatic, um, someone who isn't very used to using fountain pens because it has more of the same feeling as you would get from using a ballpoint or a pencil, you know, that same sort of resistance that you would get from a regular ballpoint. So um, I'm really happy with how the nib feels. If only yours was cut right. (laughs) If only mine was cut right. Ah, quality control should have picked that up. Like I said, I got no complaints. My pen writes great. You should try it someday. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I hope to try your nib one day. Um, so at this point, the Hexo is only slowly being reintroduced into the market. And at the moment, it's only available through Pen City and Pen Ultimate. It will soon be available from Larry Post. So slowly, slowly, it's been that kind of year. Mm. Any last thoughts? Um. About this particular pen, no, but Faber-Castell, the things I love about Faber-Castell, mm-hmm. and this is not just me gushing about Faber-Castell, <laughs> I, do, I do like um, Faber-Castell as a whole. I love their inks. I love that their inks come in 75-milliliter bottles that are almost impossible to topple over, almost impossible because nothing is impossible. 
I have been using Faber-Castell mechanical pencils and their 2B lead my entire schooling career. And even to this day, it is the only like mechanical pencil um, refill that I use. I love it. Something very interesting I found out when I was going through the historical, the illustrated history of Faber-Castell was, and I'm not a pencil fanatic, but I was very interested to find out that one of the Faber brothers, the one who went to the US and established his own company under his own name there, he was the one that invented the Blackwing 602. And the Blackwing was originally made under the name of Eberhard Faber. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, And it was made under that name until the, ooh, like the late 20th century. And when I told Max this, he was like, yeah, that's why the Faber-Castell 900, no, the Faber-Castell 9003B is very similar to the Blackwing 602, as it's currently made by Blackwing, except the Faber-Castell pencils are so much cheaper <laughs> because oh, the Blackwings are, tip. because the Blackwings obviously are selling, uh, um, are priced based on the brand. Um, whereas Faber-Castell pencils are just so ubiquitous. And I think they deserve a revival um, because I've used a lot of Faber-Castell over the years. But I think I've bought into the fact that um, black wings are obviously the, the best of pencils. And um, it's time for me <laughs> to try more pencils. Um, yeah, I need to have a talk chat with our pencil guy, with Tom, at some point. Because I know he's yeah. very up he's, in his yeah. pencil lore. Um, he'll probably be able to tell me why Faber-Castell never kept the brand of the Blackwing. Well, I hope, listeners, that this episode gave you a little bit of an idea of our experiences with the brand of Faber-Castell and all their pens from, you know, the most entry level to the very, very high-end um, Graf and Faber-Castell models. Neither of us have a pen of the year, at this point, but we have handled several of them and they are exquisitely made, but very, very heavy and quite difficult to write with. Yeah. So we have been fortunate enough to um, have attended pen meets with someone who does own multiple um, pen of the years. And the one that I remember the most is the jade, Mm -hmm. the carved jade pen of the year that feels like um, a self-defense weapon. <laughs> it really does. And it's not that it's a big pen. It, it's chunky, but it's not a big, big pen. It's not like a, you know, um, what is it? An ASC mm-hmm. pen where you, you can whack someone over the head with it. It is a heavy, heavy pen because of the precious materials that they use on it. I'm always interested in the pens of the year because some of them, it's very obvious that they they went from the material and then they thought, how do I fit this onto a pen? Like it's very material focused. Um, and sometimes that creates a pen that is virtually unusable. But other times um, when it's a material that's quite light, like the olive wood, which I really like, um, that creates a pen of the year that's actually incredibly functional. And at, one day I will get one of the olive woods, the elements, I think it's called. Oh, that's not a pen of the year. Isn't it? It's not. Oh. So, uh, it's not one of the pen of the year, but it is a, a, it's a limited edition, just not a pen of the year. Okay. There 
was, I'm just trying to think which ones really speak to me. I loved the amber. Mm-hmm. Again, I would never use it, but I loved the amber pen of the year. And I was also really intrigued by the horsehair one. Yes. I remember we mentioned that in the episode about unique materials. Yes, because it's just something that you would never think of, like mm-hmm. horsehair on a pen. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's um for the wish list one day. Yeah. And I wonder what 2021's pen of the year will be. I think this year was Spartan. Oh, was that the one with abs? The pen that had abs? Was it? Let me have a look. I think it's the pen that has abs. <laughs> because there was a pen this year that came out and it had a six pack. Was that a Visconti or was it a Faber-Castell? Um, the pen has dimples, which look like armor, but they don't look like abs. Oh, wait. Yes, they do look like abs. <laughs> It's the abs pen, right? It's the abs pen. It's the abs pen. I remember having this conversation at one point going, man, this this pen is ripped. It's macho as (laughs) – actually, yes. I was going to say maybe it goes all the way around the section, so it's not just abs, but actually it is. It is only on one side of the section, so it is definitely abs. (laughs) Or the breastplate. Well, there were – I think this wasn't the only – yeah, this wasn't the only pen this year that had a six-pack. Um, there was one other one, which is escaping my mind. I think it's some Italian pen that also had. That's what I was thinking of. I thought it was maybe a Visconti or something mm, in that I line. I think it was a Visconti. Okay. I'm going to have to go I'll go and I'll try and dig it out. But I do remember that this one had a six-pack. I mean, look, your your grip's never going to slip from that. <laughs> no. Which is handy because it's a. it looks like quite a heavy metallic grip. One day when I see a pen of the year I really like, I will probably get it. That's our review of the Hexo. And I hope one day uh, when retail store shopping becomes possible again, um, you'll be able to visit your local pen retailer and try one out for yourself. Because I think if you like light, very business-like pens that write well, uh, provided you can see and test the nib yourself, I think you'll be really happy with it. So we normally finish our episode with a recommendation. It can be fountain pen related, but it doesn't have to be. Sharon, what's your recommendation? Oh, straight into it. You're lucky I did prepare one today. I have been obsessed with a TV show, 12 episodes, called The Long Night. And it is a Chinese thriller suspense show, um, detective show which um, hooked me in from like the first five minutes of the show. The premise is done very well. It feels like a very well-produced show that you would expect to see on HBO, except it is free online on a website called iq.com, although the first episode, first two episodes, I think, are on YouTube as well. So you can give it a go on there. It's called The Long Night, and basically – it starts off with a guy hauling a suitcase um, through the subway and then threatening uh, and refusing to let the suitcase be scanned at a security checkpoint and then telling everyone that he has a bomb in the suitcase and he's going to blow up the entire subway. But when they open up the suitcase, they find a dead body in it. And so the guy confesses to murder, but it is then discovered that he could not possibly be the murderer because he wasn't even in the city on the day that the guy died. 
and then there's a whole unraveling of a like ten, twenty year old murder mystery that happens over twelve episodes. It is like it messes with your head. It messes with your head, and it you can understand how it would happen.、Um, it's got twists and turns, and it's very well produced. The acting's top notch. I can't say enough good things about it. And you know, murder thrillers aren't really my genre. I am not like a suspense. Thriller, detective show. Yeah. So when you were describing this to me initially, I was waiting for you to drop. Oh, and there's time travel. Oh, or there's a vampire or something. <laughs> no, this is actually just about people doing investigation, like people investigating a crime. That is it. It is a police drama、um, of sorts. It, it is so not my usual cup of tea, but I. Watched this entire series in basically one afternoon. I started at about two, and I finished like a little bit past midnight that night. And it was wow! I really, really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it. It's called The Long Night. The Long Night on IQ. On IQ, or the, like I said, the first episode or two episodes are on YouTube. So you can try it out, and then it's free on IQ.com. Okay, so I've been following the series of videos on munchies、um, on YouTube. It's called、uh, what's it called? Like street food, and they did a feature on a food truck in Austin, Texas, I think last year, and they featured this couple、um, who own a Thai food truck. They're this lovely couple. The wife is from Thailand. She comes from a, a rural family who、um, has been cooking and working in restaurants like for generations, and she cooks very traditional sort of home style、uh, northeastern Thai food from the back of a truck、um, with her husband, and they have this incredibly warm and like really fun. Dynamic between them that's just really fun to watch, and their food is so obviously、um, celebrated by their local community. I'm going to assume that there aren't that many Thai people living in Austin, Texas. So the fact that she's managed to find success there just gives me a lot of joy.、Um, so her episode on munchies is really great. You can tell that she's the one who's like the wife. She's the boss. Of that food truck, <laughs> like she makes all the decisions. They obviously just work so hard to make that work, and so it's been really tough as for a lot of small business owners and restaurant owners this year because of COVID. I was really quite touched to see that on Munchies they did a follow up with this couple, Didi's Northeastern Thai. I think the food truck is called Didi's.、Uh, Food truck or something like that, and they did a, a renewed episode with this couple,、um, following up on what they're doing now, and so they've started their own vegetable garden. Basically, they've they've done what a lot of us have done in quarantine and <laughs> started. Yes, what I've done in quarantine, but with much greater success, which is that they've started growing their own food. The wife, the chef. Um, she's been growing a lot of food and then serving it to her customers. 
I'm not sure if they're doing the same routine with the food truck, but they're obviously doing some sort of a takeaway and delivery service. And she produces so much that um, she's able to sell it. And she's also started her own YouTube channel where she talks about making her sort of homestyle Thai dishes. And she's just incredibly charming. And it's just really, I don't know, it makes me really warm, you know, to see this successful immigrant story and um, to know that she's, if not um, thriving in COVID, you know, at least making a go of it through this difficult time for the industry. And um, her recipes are really great to follow. She's very pragmatic with her use of um, ingredients, like I don't know how to describe it. Like she will make shortcuts that someone who's obviously cooked this recipe many, many times will make. And she'll share those with you. And she'll um, also give tips on like saving seeds and things like that. So really good for home gardeners as well as for home chefs, home cooks, I should say. Um, So if you like Thai food, if you like watching people cook food, as I know a lot of us do, I really recommend both the series on Didi's food truck on Munchies and also Didi's own YouTube channel and her Instagram, which is DDATX. So that's the Instagram. It's at DDDEEDEEATX. So that's my recommendation. Give a give this couple a go. Well, thank you, Sharon, uh, for spending an hour with me on a Sunday evening. Good to talk to you, and um, we'll catch up soon. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nip Section Facebook page or at the Nip Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nip Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pans Oceania. Our producers this episode were Sharon Zah and Diana Dye. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Special guest was Michael Karakatsanis. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>